Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show, where you why are you giving me that look? <laughs> I didn't get the name wrong. It really <laughs> is the name of the show. I'm wondering where you're going with this, and it's just my face. It, but when you give me the weird look, it makes me wonder if I screwed something up already. And since, you know, we were less than 30 seconds into the show, there wasn't much I could have screwed up other than not hitting the blinky red button. But the blinky red button has been hit. I have no idea what weird look you're referring to. It's called listening to you. Is it that unfamiliar to you? Actually, yes. Uh. <laughs> so, um, we had planned on doing a show last weekend. Um, was totally in a realm. And then, of course, we looked at the schedule about, oh, Friday and realized that we had enough stuff going in the, during the day that... Either we recorded a show or the boy had to take up residence at O'Hare Airport and that was its own problem. Apparently, the boy did not approve of spending the night, Sunday night, in the airport. Yeah, and I guess also the, the local authorities kind of discourage such things too. So, we, do ha- we, we did have a race this weekend which meant we had Fantasy GP. Yes. And before we get into anything, let's talk about, well, let, let's review the results. Mm-hmm. We can still stand proudly because Canada's really big. It was one of the closest finishes in the history of the show's Fantasy GP League, with just six points separating the top three finishers. Michael's Mach 5 Racing won the weekend with 167 points, just three points ahead of Trisha's The Bird Team at 164 points, and Phil's Team Rocket was three points further back at 161 points. Jim's There's No Crying in Baseball was fourth at 142 points, and the Cats continued to struggle with the boys' Moonlit Black Cats in fifth on 112 points, and Vicky's House Cats in sixth with 107 points. In the overall standings, the positions are unchanged as Michael's Mach 5 Racing remains in first place with 1,401 points, and Phil's Team Rocket holds on to the second place that he regained in Spain with 1,269 points. Trisha's The Bird Team is in third with 1,247 points. Jim's still in fourth on 1,088 points, followed by The Boy in fifth with 1,044 points, and Vicky's House Cats in sixth with 825 points. There's still time to join us for free by signing up at www.fantasygp.com and then entering the league code 148-31491. That's 148-31491. We got a lot of land. We got a whole lot of land. So stand up and be thrilled that you used the national anthem of Canada <laughs> as written by the arrogant worms. Well, I, you know, I, I kind of figured that since Canada is in fact really big, that we needed a big piece for that. Okay. But that's only <laughs> if they keep Quebec. Yes. Which, you know, coincidentally, they were in Quebec. Right. They were. 
So, we had Canada race this weekend. We did. Um, bef- there's been talk, before we even really talk about Canada, there's been talk over the last couple of weeks, um, both over the fact that, and, and, and I think, unfortunately, it's accurate, There there is a really, really strong chance that Red Bull is going to completely run away with it this year. Um, that That's not to say that Mercedes and Ferrari, well, Ferrari's sliding backwards. Ferrari is being Ferrari. Mercedes hadn't moved forward. They just hadn't moved forward nearly as much as Red Bull has. Um, Aston certainly had the the appearance of moving further, um, but they're not quite there yet. Mercedes has improved. I don't think they're quite there yet. They're, They're much closer than they have been in the past. Um, and, and I think it, as much as I think Max was managing the race, the fact that he didn't win by 30 plus seconds this weekend, um, maybe there's some movement here in a good direction, but I think there's still a very real chance that Red Bull's going to run away with the race. And if they somehow manage it, and I know there's still a long way left in the season, but if they still somehow manage to win every race in the season, Given the length of the season, it's going to be a fairly remarkable achievement. Sure. We're not quite there yet. But whenever we have a team that looks like they are far and away better than everybody else in the champion, there's always those those rumblings that come out there. We've seen it for years now of, well, you know, maybe we need to change the rules a little bit and come up with success ballast or tweak the tires or something along the lines to try and slow the team down. I've always thought it's a stupid idea. You know, We've talked about it repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And the rumors are coming out again. Thankfully, there's two people who have come out and said, and there may have been more, but at least very publicly, who've come out and said, you know, that that's a really stupid idea. Let's not do it. And it's not you and me. Those, the, the, well, those, besides us. I, I just wanted to be clear that it was two actually important people, not just us well the first person to come out and say it was Toto Wolf well considering Mercedes has been on the <clears throat> butt end of that kind of decision making multiple times mm-hmm. I would I would hope but you know Toto and does think bigger than his team occasionally there were allegations last year that the changes that were mandated to reduce bouncing that Mercedes, there were allegations that Mercedes really wanted them in the hope of slowing down Red Bull. Mm. Um, Mercedes obviously denied it, and there was no evidence that it actually did that. Um, but there, there were allegations around that. But Toto has said, no, that this is a bad idea. We should not do that. Um, but the other person who just as important is Stefano Domenicali, who has said, yeah, we're not going to manipulate the championship to slow down Red Bull. Now, I would not be opposed to, you know, a change in the rules. And actually, no, I'm going to take that back. I would be opposed to a change in rules even between the seasons to outlaw whatever it is that Red Bull figured out to get the speed. Because I have said repeatedly that I hate it that when a team comes up with some trick new design that blows everybody away that F1's reaction is to ban it. 
as opposed to letting everybody else come up with their own adaptation of it and roll it out on their cars. So I think that what they ought to do to make next year fair, if, if Red Bull wins every race this season, and I think it needs to be caveated that Red Bull has to win every race this season, that they throw out the technical regulations next year, that they go back to double diffusers are in, fan car is in, all of those things are back in. There's been some talk, at least among the pundits, of you know the 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 cost cap arguably has been effective, and it teams that we've started to see things bunch up a bit performance wise. Teams are starting to catch up and figure out how to work under the cost cap so that leave the cost cap in place and do exactly what you said of throw out the other regulations and let teams just have at it within the boundaries of that cost cap. I think that'd be amazing because the truth of the matter is when you strip everything away, the reality is the the regulations as they are written now, it's they're playing with minutia mm-hmm. and it's not allowing truly revolutionary design. Everything is evolutionary. And I get it has to be done with the bounds of a cost cap. You have to have one or the other. You have to have the really restrictive technical regulations or you have to have a cost cap to prevent a very, very wealthy team from just putting an engine in at every event. You know, five well, engines a, a race weekend or infinite numbers of wings and changes and second cars and all of those things you can throw dump trucks of money into this and win it i mean that's possible Mm -hmm. but do one or the other you don't need to do both and i'd love to see the revolutionary design that could come out of what could you do for a million dollars well you know we we've seen the we've already seen the impact of restrictive technical regulations and fairly unrestricted budgets Mm -hmm. we've seen that up until the the implementation of the cost cap and we still saw the the difference between the teams of the haves and the have-nots and teams investing the dump trucks full of money for minuscule gains on the smallest of smallest parts of the car because that was all that was left for them to develop. So arguably, that's not a great answer anymore. I think at this point, we can turn around and say that, you know, let's leave the cost cap in place, toss out the the restrictive technical regulations, you know, leave what needs to be there from a safety perspective. That's what I believe. I believe that we should have a set of rules that is the sporting regulations. That's how you run the race. Mm-hmm. And you have a set of safety regulations. Everything else is on the table except the cost cap. I think that combination could truly make an incredible Formula One era. Not a season, an era. So I think you can have some other... I mean, I mean you, you do need to limit a couple of things. What? So I think there's fair for you know, some degree of technical regulation. You know, the fact of the the engine formula for Formula One is a V6 engine with these components. Okay. 
um, and potentially limits on horsepower to make sure that nobody's throwing in an engine that is completely out of range with everything else. Um, I believe also the technical regulations cover things like park for May conditions and so that's sporting regulations. I, I I could be wrong, but there there's some components of it that, that I do agree with. You know, also probably the other area that would make sense is around the general size of the car. Would, but still scaling back what the restrictions are and what you know allow the return of double diffusers, like you said, and the Coanda exhaust and and hell, I would even say the hydraulic and articulated suspension that Williams used years ago allow that to come back too because if somebody can develop that cheaply enough, go well, for it. What was the one that uh, Mercedes had where they could push the uh, oh, the DAS system. The DAS system. That, that got outlawed after it was proven that it was working really well. You know, the It other, actually was not, but anyway. The other thing that they need to consider is you also have to have some level of regulation on what you can do that disrupts the airflow behind your car. Yeah. Because we do know that if they disrupt that air enough, all they have to do is get in front. And if you're driving mm-hmm. in clean air... You can't, somebody can't get around you. So they've got to have some level of that type of thing. As otherwise, you're going to put a giant fan on the back of your car and disrupt all the air yeah. behind you so that nobody can get past you. Um, so there's that piece. But what I really want to see is I want to see true innovation in these cars. I want to see the Braun fan car. I want to see, I, I laugh and joke, the six wheel Terrell, but that would come at a cost because that's two extra wheels per race mm-hmm. um so braun was double diffuser by the way the fan car was brabham brabham yep sorry another b team it's the b teams <laughs> <laughs> but it's those things i want to see that type of stuff come back to formula one i want to see a team take a risk and succeed well arguably we did see a team take a risk they just didn't succeed at it you mean the no side pod design yeah well, yeah, there's that. <laughs> I mean, there's that. arguably that did happen. But, okay, let's talk about that for a second. No side pod. They hung on to it for <clears throat> longer than anybody thought that they should have. They totally reversed direction. It should have come out in MLO. We all get it. Did really well in Spain. And every pundit out there was like, remember last year? They thought they'd solved porpoising it in mm-hmm. Spain and they get to Canada and Mercedes like it was back and this time around it wasn't back it you know they didn't go backwards in Canada everybody thought yeah. oh well what they saw in in Spain might have been a fluke because it was a fluke last year but it wasn't and I think that's a really good thing so I'm, I'm proud of Mercedes I just wish you guys had figured out the no side pod didn't work a year ago honestly I think the big difference between the two was that last year's car, and, and why we saw it throughout other parts of the year as well, last year's car, especially in the first half of the year, had such a narrow window that it performed well at, and Mercedes knew that in that window it would perform really good. Possibly not a full-on race winner, but it would perform really good and allow them to get nice and close up to the front. The problem was that window was so narrow 
mm-hmm. that there weren't a lot of opportunities that they could exploit. It. Spain was one of them. Montreal clearly was not last year. And they didn't understand enough about the car or just it wasn't possible with the car to make that window wider. Exactly. And I think that's the issue. This year, I think the changes that they have made, as everybody else has shown, is really the way to go and gives you that bigger window. I, I want to know how this is going to impact their budget cap, though. I mean, this is a significant... It, Mercedes says it's not, and I'm not sure I buy it. But this is a fairly significant change to the, to the design of the car. And how much did it cost them to come up with this design and build it out? Well, I mean, keep in mind, they just cut back on hospitality a little bit, <laughs> and they paid for it. I mean, that's <clears throat> it, it, it's a shell game. It's all a shell game. They went over to the Red Bull hospitality tent and cleaned out the couch cushions. Well, my understanding is that the way Red Bull is staying under the hospital under the the cost cap this year because it was hospitality last year is it Christian Horner? He's bar- basically he, he set up the Weber grill in the back and and he's running the barbecue. He is not running a <laughs> Weber grill. Absolutely not. Weber's like refused to to allow. He him. likes Mark. Oh, yeah. Multi-21. Yeah. Uh-huh. He, no, he was upset. About, Mark was upset about how the team handled that. But Mark, the person on the team that Mark didn't like, besides Sebastian Vettel, was Helmut Marco. He liked um, Christian Horner. But, but it was Helmut Marco who didn't like him. They didn't get along. And Christian Horner is Marco's boy. Well, there's that. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Okay. So, Charles Leclerc this weekend ran a special tribute helmet to Canadian hero and namesake of the circuit that we raced at, uh, Jacques Villeneuve. Um, However, he did run it every day. Um, Actually, no, I'm sorry. He did. He got permission to run it Friday. Um, But there were some issues. Not the least of which was the fact that I guess... When is it Jacques or Gilles? Oh, I'm sorry, Gilles. It was Jacques. Jacques, the dad. Thank you. The the yeah. I'm like, yes, we were at Circuit Gilles Villeneuve. Exactly, yes. not Jacques. So he wore a special tri- tribute helmet to Gilles Villeneuve, um, but apparently he didn't get the family's permission in advance. Um, they didn't know what the design was. And apparently last year there was an issue too. And I guess it was blocked. I don't, I don't even know what happened last year, but there were problems with the family and not knowing about the helmet and not getting permission. And he wasn't allowed to wear the helmet. He planned on wearing. But this year, move forward, again, I guess failed to initially get permission from the family. And the family doesn't live all that far away from, this, from Montreal. It's it's like forty five. I've been there. It's like forty five minutes away over to uh, Saint Jean sur Richelieu. Um, didn't get permission from the family. The family on social media expressed surprise about the helmet, but they didn't say don't use it. However, folks reacted to the family saying that they were surprised by the helmet, is that they didn't approve of the helmet, and started lashing out at Jacques and the rest of the family. And Jacques like, no, 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 no. We didn't know about it, but we've seen it. We like it. We're okay with it. He has permission to run with it. 
Charles invited the family down to the track, took pictures with them with the helmet and trackside and all of that. But it was a kerfuffle that probably didn't need to happen. So basically, Charles's people didn't call the Villeneuve family. Yeah. Like, the phones don't work? <clears throat> Maybe I, they don't speak French or Canadian French? I don't know. And it wasn't like the picture that the helmet had like a picture of Gilles on it or something like it's that. It's the colors it was that a, he ran. Yeah, it was it was the red and black that he used to run on his helmet. And in a similar style that he used to run on his helmet. That seems like a whole lot of nothing to me. It I mean, should have been. Just, yeah. The weekend overall, though, was not without issues. No, they really had some issues in free practice, didn't they? So, free practice one, you know, normally these are 60-minute sessions. Um, they only had about three minutes of runtime. So, initially, um, running in free practice one was stopped after Pierre Gasly um, experienced a drive shaft issue on the run between turn seven and eight. Um, once they got the car pushed behind the barrier, it was now five minutes had gone in, um, but they didn't restart the session. It turns out that even though there were, everything was ready to go, there was a problem with the CCTV system. Oh. And it wasn't properly, so they had video, but I guess it wasn't properly syncing, um, you know, it wasn't a live view everywhere at the same time of the same thing. That's essential for safety reasons because it's how the stewards and the marshals and race control can monitor everything that's happening. Right. So they didn't restart the session. And ultimately, they ended up having to wave to, to not hold the session after all of three minutes of running. Oh, my. They came up with an alternate solution. Um, they decided to start free practice two 30 minutes early to make it a 90-minute session. They did get most of the way through. But then towards the very end of it, there was a torrential downpour that flooded the circuit. Yeah, that that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. So not a whole lot of running on Friday. <laughs> and when you flood the circuit, you also reset all of the surface based on the rubber. Well, there's that, but also, again, remember qualifying, we had a wet qualifying too, right. which does the same thing. And apparently there were not a lot or any of the support races. Yeah, I don't, were, I don't think Montreal does a lot of them. And they were just talking about that there was not rubber laid down on that track like we would expect for a Grand Prix weekend. Mm -hmm. um, so that led to... An unexpected grid. It was. It was an unexpected grid. Um, and also the most interesting factoid that I heard as we were getting ready for Lights Out was that every tire combination, every dry tire combination, I should be very mm -hmm. precise here, every dry tire combination was on the grid at the same time, which is not usual. I, I can't it. recall it happening. Every different tire strategy 
kind of everybody was throwing different concepts of tire strategy. Some were starting with the hards, thinking they'd go long. Some were starting with softs, thinking they'd get out well, in front faster. Only Gasly cool. started with the softs. Okay, but it allowed... It was a mistake. Yeah, it was. But it allowed us to have every tire combination on the track at the same time. Yeah. Um, Ferrari made some questions. I mean, where they ended up in the race, despite them once again shooting themselves in the foot repeatedly in qualifying. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ferrari is having a meeting in Maranello to discuss their strategy calls in free practice to particularly around Charles Leclerc. So the issue there was, you know, we had those changing conditions. Teams were making jumps onto slicks because it was looking like we were hitting a crossover point. Charles was calling to go to slicks and was overridden by the team. The team wanted to ha- him to have banker laps on the enters, which fine, but did not want him to. And by the time they made the call for him to come in, they missed that optimal point. So the team's position was, well, we were looking at the weather, we were looking at the greater picture, and we thought that the risk was too great for him to come in earlier to go in and, and switch over to the slicks. Charles, mm-hmm. at least immediately following qualifying, did not agree. <laughs> Um, they've said he he's they've shown him the videos and talked about it. I guess Ferrari still stands by that decision, um, but I think there may still be some disagreement between Charles and the team around that. And you know there was an interesting comment that was pointed out by or an interesting thing pointed out by by David Croft that Ferrari in particular, and and I don't even know if it's so much Charles as is as it is Carlos Sainz. He frequently disagrees with the team on their tire strategy. And he at least has the ability to veto the team. Mm-hmm. And we, we've seen it happen quite a bit with Carlos. I don't know if we've seen it as often with Charles. I wonder what the difference is. Because one would argue that they are pretty level on experience level. Um, but we don't necessarily hear all of the conversation. Yeah. Um, so that may just be a perception not being reality also. What I have to wonder is we have often talked about, you know, McLaren having a naughty step, Mercedes having a naughty step. Does Ferrari have a naughty step? Um, they don't. That's a problem. What they, well, it depends on who you're going to put there, but what they do have. It's not a naughty step. It's different. They have they have a slightly different. They're Italian. They're going to do it differently. Yeah, they they have a slightly different approach as opposed to the naughty step. What they do is they make the misbehaving driver. They have to spend the next week washing dishes over at the Montana restaurant, Marino. Oh. Yes, it's it's different. Very Italian. Yeah. Very Italian. <laughs> I see that. Now, what happens if the misbehaving? It's not a misbehaving driver, but in fact, the strategy team. That we do not know. I think that's the problem. I think we have not had punishments for the strategy team. I was going to say, based on last year and the issues that occurred, what it appears is that if the strategy team gets it wrong, they all get Ferraris. And if the strategy team gets it right, they all get Ferraris. Uh... (laughs) Oh. 
<laughs> so the question is, is it a difference between you get the good Ferrari or you get the Dino? No, I think it's the same thing. Oh, that's probably the root of their problem. Yeah. Yeah. You, you need to give them, if they get it wrong, a Fiat mm. and not a Ferrari. You got the F word wrong. Yeah. L- look to another car within the, the brand family. I think you have a particular Fiat Panda you would recommend. Well, it's, well, actually, hopefully by now it's been retired, but it was in a rental car lot at the Bologna Airport. It it was red. See? It was red. It was a little red car. One of the fastest cars in Italy with a tailwind. (laughs) Downhill. Off a cliff. Um... (laughs) With a completely burnt clutch. Yes, that too. Um. (laughs) All right. So speaking of other complaining. (laughs) Drivers were a bit upset about the barrier over at turn one at the start of the weekend. Um, So previous years, if you overshot, if a driver overshot turn one, they could return to the track beyond uh, turn two and then merged into traffic relative safety. Um, for this year, however, the FIA extended the barrier uh, in an attempt to stop cars that were out of control, um, you know, due to a mechanical failure or something like that, which could lead them to basically out of control go racing into the traffic coming out of turn two. You know, the idea, notable, smart. I, I can't help but wonder in all the years that we've been watching the Montreal Grand Prix and it's been around a lot longer than we've been watching it I don't recall a scenario where a car careened out of control across the inside of turn one into traffic at turn two so you're suggesting that they had a solution looking for a problem well they had a solution for a problem that I'm not sure we've actually experienced and yeah, there, there's something to be said for proactive problem solving. However, um, yeah. So drivers didn't like this approach because it made it a whole lot. Basically, in order for a driver to rejoin a track, it forced them over the curbs, it forced them over the grass, and Ooh, yeah, that's could have good. caused other problems. So they pushed back on it, and for the race on Sunday, the dry, the barrier was pulled back and did not lead into an issue. And again, we <clears throat> did not see anybody miss turn one and careen into traffic in turn two. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, you're going to have to explain this one to me. I, I am. And, and even as I read it, I've, I've got to go through it slow because it was kind of confusing even when I understood it. So, I don't know about everybody else's DVR, but our DVR did not record pre-race coverage. Normally it does, even when it's over on ABC, um, but it did not do that this time. So, it, we, we started the race with the cars already on the grid, getting ready to start the formation lap, which is where we were informed that Nico Hulkenberg had gotten a penalty. And we didn't know why. Right, and they didn't explain it because <clears throat> the race was starting. Yeah, so it was a three-place grid drop. Essentially, what it was, was that when the red flag came out due to um, Oscar Piastri going into the wall at turn seven in Q3, 
they said that Nico was speeding under red flag conditions. Okay. So where this came from is that by looking at the ECU, and this was after the car came to the pits post-section, they looked at the ECU and they found that he had gone faster than the minimum delta time that was set in the ECU. Okay. By 1.3 seconds. Oh. Or 1.5 seconds. Okay. So according to the stewards, the driver had just finished his fastest lap and had started another push lap. He was at turn one when the red flag was displayed. However, at that point, he was already 1.5 seconds over his delta time. So think about that. From the start of his, because it's the start of the lap. From the start of the lap already into turn one. He was running 1.5 seconds ahead. Because he was on a push lap. Oh, wow. So red flag comes out. And he's now got to spend the rest of that lap slowing down enough to get under 1.5 seconds. Wow. Yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, and that's the thing is he's working off of a delta time. It's not like there's a speed limit for him to stay at. But, okay, now, I'm going to go with the, I don't know everything, mm-hmm. shockingly. I get they have to have some measurement point. Mm-hmm. But think about that for a second. Now, in reality, he would have had the majority of the lap to have slowed down enough to offset that delta. Mm-hmm. So if he, you know, round numbers, if he did that lap in 1 minute 20, the lap, the fastest lap, and he needed to do one minute 35 to make the delta. He had a long time to do that. But if that's the <clears throat> way they measure it, if somebody was on a hot lap and they were in turn last, last turn, whatever number that is, 16, 17, and had to come up with a delta, you'd basically have to stop the car. Well, and, and that and could this be is really unsafe. The, these are the other things that they put in here. And and the more you hear it, the more it's like, I get it, but there wasn't a lot of common sense here. So they said that Nico claimed that um, because he was already 1.5 seconds over his delta by the time the red flag was displayed in turn one, it was extremely difficult for him to come below the delta in the next sector. He also admitted to confusion about the beep signal in his helmet and therefore at one stage thought he was going too slow. But here's where it gets really crazy. Comparison of telemetry with that of car 31 showed that in general, for the rest of the lap, he was approximately the same speed as car 31, which complied with the delta times in each mini sector. So he ran with traffic. So he ran with traffic with a car that was in compliance. And the only reason why is because he started that lap on a push lap. And he he achieved the 1.5 seconds out of Delta before the red flag. Right. Now, they oh, did say that they regard this as a mitigating circumstance. But then they go on to say, 
However, the regulation is very clear, and whilst there is no question of the driver acting dangerously or driving unsafely, there was a breach and thus a penalty has to be imposed. The normal penalty for failure to slow under red flags is 10 grid positions. However, in view of the mitigating circumstance, a lower penalty is appropriate. We note the intention of the regulation is to ensure a car is not speeding during a red flag situation, and there is no evidence that the speed was excessive in this case. We also note that the driver should make himself more familiar with the operational aspects of the radio sig- of, of the delta signals. And that's, that's what drives me crazy right here, is the comment in their thing. We note the intention of the regulation is to ensure a car is not speeding during a red flag situation and there is no evidence that the speed was excessive in this case. So he was within the spirit of the regulation. Mm-hmm. They have clocked him to another car that was within the regulation and yet he suffered. Now, it was mighty nice of them to not make it a 10 grid penalty and drop it only down to three. Yeah. But still. My heart breaks for Hulk. He should have been on the front row. He deserved it. Yeah, there, there's... The other thing that kind of blows me away is, you know, just like they acknowledge that there's no evidence that the speed was... It's not like there was a performance benefit to be gained here. No. You know... He didn't... Say, that was not the lap he got on the front row with. Nope. They could have... They, they could have just deleted the lap. Well, no, they couldn't have deleted the lap. And actually, deleting the lap would have been even worse. Um, Because the red flag came out on the lap he was on. That lap didn't count. Ah. Okay, so they couldn't have deleted the lap. But they could have... They they could have done a thousand other things, including just going, "Eh." Well, he set the 1.5... Prior to the red flag. Yeah. That's the part that really bugs me. I, I, I go back to, by their own admission, the intention of the regulation was not violated. Right. It was only because he was on the push at the start. Yeah. That was what, I mean. It, yeah, I know. So... Remember the whole wibbly wobbly wingy thingy on the back of Ocon's car? <laughs> wibbly wobbly wingy thingy. I loved, 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 loved the conversation between Norris and his team about the wing of the car in front of him. It, it was a valid concern, although the thing had been wobbling mm-hmm. for a while. It, that, that wasn't the first. Um you do have to wonder a bit, given the action that the FIA has taken in the past to black and white cars with loose pieces, why they didn't step in. But it wasn't dangling. They normally will step in if something's hanging off or looking like it yeah. is impending to break. The question, I mean, honestly, everybody, including the pundits, were having the question of, is that amount of movement normal? So this, we, we've got comments from Otmar about it. Otmar says that they were confident that for the remaining duration of the race, the wing was safe. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there was a failure on the wing. Um, he 
did say that the way the wing was designed, they knew what the failure was. They they knew that the wing was still secure, even though there was the failure. The only thing I guess they changed were some elements on the top of the wing um, to the design that they're in right now. Okay. Um, but he says that they were confident. They were in conversation with the FIA and with um, the the stewards about the safety of the, the, the wing and that they didn't believe that it was going to come off and that the stewards listened to them. Um, but it, it was worth noting. Yeah. It was impressively bouncy. Yeah. And what... what we didn't get a good answer on it, is that if the wing is moving that much, how much does that impact the effectiveness of it? Well, you asked the effectiveness of it. I also wonder about that whole disruption of the air behind it. Because yeah. that that's also a piece of this. And wasn't there something in the technical regulations about the wing not flexing more than something? I thought I well, read that when I read the entire th- technical regulation. That's the, the wing itself. And, and we had to deal with that with Red Bull last year. That the wing itself, not the whole rear structure, <laughs> sure, the wing fly, flopping around. That that different type of deflection. Ah, um, yeah, they had floppy bits. Yeah, I mean, I was wondering, d- does that count as movable aerodynamics that are not supposed to be movable? Could be. So, Alonzo yeah. and Aston Martin and the lifting coast order, we have found out at least to some extent what it is. Okay. And despite Mercedes thinking that it was a brake issue, and even um, the, the pundits, because they couldn't figure out what was going on, thinking that it was a brake issue, it was not a, bl- a brake issue. Actually, it was a bad sensor. Ah. Best way to put it. Um, they thought they had a fuel issue, so they ordered him lift and coast in response to a p- potential fuel issue. Obviously, it was costing Fernando time, mm-hmm. um, and in particular, it was costing Fernando time to Lewis for a bit. Right. Um, honestly, it was that question of at what point was Aston going to tell Fernando, okay, stop playing around with lift and coast. We need you to stay ahead of Lewis. Um and we saw exactly when that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was not an actual problem. Okay. So, and I can understand Aston being concerned about it since they've had fuel bladder issues. That, they have. Yeah. And as for Max. Max. Wins the race, what, by seven seconds? Mm-hmm. So... Gap appears to be getting narrower. Mm-hmm. I think it was pretty clear, though, that Max was managing the race. Yeah, I think he was saving his engine a little bit. But along the same lines, so do you remember that call, what, about 25% of the way through that Max said he thought he hit a bird? Yes. He hit a bird. Uh-oh. Um, the bird, the remains of our collision victim, um, accident victim, was wedged in front of the right brake duct. Oh. So diminished cooling on his brakes at a brake-sensitive track, and still he finished seven seconds up the road. 
Wow. With dinner and his birthday. Apparently. Max did say he didn't think, uh, well, he felt bad for the mechanic that had to clean that out. You know, if he was a real mensch, he would have cleaned it out himself. He hit the bird. It wasn't a skunk. Now, come on. By the way, did you see the pictures that ESPN shared of the Aston Martin celebration? With the dog? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Actually, I have to say, there's something about Canada. There's something about Canada that is very pet or animal friendly. Mm -hmm. We had Gary the Groundhog. Yeah. (laughs) Years ago, a few years ago, we had Vettel and Lewis discussing the seagulls and the birds. Uh Well, it was the seagull that didn't get off the track. And it was the seagull that, you know, met his untimely end um, in Max's break duct. And now we had one of the security dogs posing with the Aston Martin team. Yeah. <laughs> a very pet-friendly, animal-friendly track. I guess it's because it's in a park. Yeah. Um. So other news away from the race. The, you know, we didn't have the, the race in Imola. Mm-hmm. So question is, well, they, they made the trophies. What do you do with them? Formula One had a really good idea. And I wish I had known about this. Not that we could have afforded it. But I wish I had known about this. They auctioned the trophies off for charity. That's awesome. It is one of the few times that F1 fans had the opportunity to get their hands on and and own an actual F1 trophy. I think that's really awesome. And the... The auction was specifically for the flood victims of that region, right? Yes. Um, they, for for uh, local flood relief. So the, the trophies, there were a couple of things that were done. For starters, all of the, the current drivers autographed each trophy. Oh, cool. So they all had that. But the trophies also included, they were engraved with the names of the winners of the past races from 1980 to 2022. Aww. So you had Nelson BK on there, DDA Peroni, Patrick Tambay, um, Alan Prost, uh, Ayrton Senna, Nigel Mansell, Michael Schumer. All of those were in- engraved on the trophies as well. So the trophy that brought in the most money, the Constructor's Trophy. Really? 71,275 pounds for the Constructor's Trophy. Wow. Um, however, the driver's trophy for the winner, 60,100 pounds. Oh, a bargain. Um, the second and third place trophies, the second place trophy was 37,325 pounds, 32,050 pounds for the third place trophy. The Pirelli Pole Award, pole award that's the, the small tire, mm-hmm. that went for, believe it or not, 40,745 pounds and the bottle and and it just said the one I I, assuming it's the one that was going to the champion um, because there's normally three but a bottle of Ferrari Trento raised 11,175 pounds wow yeah so rough math here a uh, hundred ninety thousand pounds were raised with those two hundred forty-seven thousand one hundred seventy-one dollars. Okay, so <laughs> my math is wrong. And our last story. Yes. So, 
Journal they had to have auctioned off more than what you just read. They, there may have, but that's what I had. All right. So Jeremy Clarkson. Not a farmer? Media personality? Well, depending on who you talk to. No, the, the, the area has called him not a farmer. But he says otherwise. But anyway. <laughs> so Jeremy Clarkson. Um, you know, he was at the Bahrain, the season opening Bahrain Grand Prix. It was apparently the first time he's been to a Formula One track in years. Mm. Um, he has thrown his lot behind the Alpine team. Not the least of which is because they're neighbors. Interesting. They're just up the road from him in Endstone. So he's thrown his lot between to the team. Um, to the point that during the race in Monaco this year, mid-race, he tweets out, come on Alpine, I'll buy you all a pint if you get a podium here. So sure enough, Esteban got on the podium in Monaco so at the end, you know, he congratulated them. Well done, shipping Norton car. Take that Ferrari. Mm-hmm. Esteban had no idea that <laughs> this had all occurred. Well, after the checkered flag, Clarkson tweets again, well done, Alpine. I owe you many Hawkstones. Hawkstone is his beer and cider brand that, that he does from on the farm. The farm. So sure enough, this past week, he showed up at the, uh, the factory in Endstone. Um, on the Lamborghini tractor with a trailer full of Hawkstone beer as and, and joining him was Caleb Cooper. Oh, well, that's important. To provide the entire team with beer. <laughs> <laughs> See, guys, he can be a good neighbor. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Now, it amazes me a little bit. I mean, I get that he's neighbors with the Endstone team. Mm-hmm. But Alpine is a French team. And historically, Clarkson has been very anti-French. He's been anti-French. Um, I think a lot of it is neighbors. And, and a lot of it is... He's been in that region for a while. And the Endstone team has been you know, a fixture there for decades. And Top Gear did a feature when it was the Renault team. And... They, he's interacted with that team for quite a while through some of his various, th- his enterprises that he's done. Okay. So it kind of makes sense for him to support the local team. Well, and it's also good publicity because, you know, he's yeah. trying to do in runs around the council right now. Everyone should watch Clarkson's Farm. You're, you're actually supporting that. I really okay. do support Clarkson's Farm. I, it's an enjoyable show. And quite frankly, the end of this last season was very heartwarming. Yeah, it was. I won't make spoilers, but he actually did a nice thing. And it looks like it may spread. We shall see. But uh, that's all we got this week. So on that note, we'll call it a show. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. 
Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. A little break? Okay. Whew.